Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello to everyone, and it's great having you tune in for this podcast. When we moved to a new state last year, one of our priorities was to find a solid church where we could fellowship at. Now, there's no shortage of churches where we live, but not all of them follow God's word or, in our opinion, focus on proper priorities. Being now in the southern United States, a pastor friend had told me, you're now in the Bible belt, and while there's a lot of belt, there's not as much Bible. Hmm. Some other transplanted friends had invited us to check out a church that they had recently started visiting, and As it turned out, they needed to go to the earlier service, so we ended up going to the second service. And we were driving on our way to church that Sunday morning, and that same friend called me on my phone and said, well, looks like I picked a bad day to invite you to church. Now, not knowing what happened, my first thought was that perhaps some unbiblical teaching had been shared, and perhaps he was calling to give me a heads up. But instead... My friend told us that during the announcements, a very heated argument had broken out on stage between some of the leadership and even a few people out in the congregation. He explained that it had gotten so very intense with wild accusations being tossed back and forth that it caused the church to cancel their services for the day, if you can believe that. Well, since we were almost there, we decided to go ahead and drive into the church parking lot, and sure enough, there were signs stating that the services had been canceled for the day. We ended up meeting some other friends there, and as we were just kind of chatting and looking around, we saw many people walking around looking shell-shocked. So we huddled up and spent some time praying for that church, for both the leadership and, and for the congregation. None of us had ever experienced that sort of conflict in a church service before, and it was truly sad. We discovered that people had their opinions as to who was right and who was wrong from that conflict, but, you know, it didn't change the fact that it happened. Returning now to the ministry of Jesus, we find that he also dealt with many conflicts, almost always with religious leaders. The big difference is that Jesus was always right and they were always wrong. In Mark chapter 2, our passage for today, we find ourselves witnessing spiritual conflicts, conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's ironic how often Christianity and religion clash and are odds with one another. The conflicts in this passage all had to do with religious traditions and man-made rules, In our last message, we looked at various scandals in Galilee, and now in this message, our title and subject will be Conflicts in Galilee. In verse 18 of Mark chapter 2, then, we read this about our first conflict. It says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees have been fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear or the hole is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined." But new wine must be put into new wineskins. The ministry of Jesus was to share the good news of the gospel and to announce the coming kingdom, while the religious leaders were busy clinging to and protecting their man-made religions and authorities. All of that led to ongoing conflict, and we'll see that played out in three different areas in our study today. Here in the verses that we just read, we begin with conflict over fasting. Here in verse 18, mention is made about the disciples of John fasting along with the Pharisees and their followers. And so then we probably should begin by making sure we know who the disciples of John were. Before Jesus went down to the Jordan River to launch his ministry, we, as we read back in chapter 1, John the Baptist was there preaching a message of repentance, and he was baptizing people in preparation for Christ's coming. Then Jesus arrived, and he was baptized, prompting John to point his followers and disciples towards Christ, telling them, Behold the Lamb of God. At that point, most of John's disciples began to follow Jesus, including Andrew, the brother of Peter, and John, the brother of James. But some of John the Baptist's disciples continued to follow him. Here in verse 18, then, it was those disciples of John the Baptist, along with the Pharisees, who were fasting twice a week. So the question was presented to Jesus, why weren't his disciples fasting twice weekly like the others? Now, whenever we encounter a spiritual question like this, we need to make a beeline for the scriptures to ask and to answer the question, what does the Bible have to say? In the Old Testament, God's people were only required to fast on one designated day during the year, on Yom Kippur, the National Day of Atonement. But religion loves to add tradition to Scripture. And so by the time we reach the end of the Old Testament period, the Jews were observing five specific days of fasting throughout the year. Then as the New Testament opens up, the Pharisees had determined that truly pious Jews should fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. You'll recall the story that Jesus told in Luke 18 about the two men who went up to the temple to pray, a lowly tax collector and a self-righteous Pharisee. That Pharisee didn't actually pray. He simply boasted out loud about his acts of self-righteousness, which included the statement, I fast twice in the week. But in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exposed the facade of the religious leaders when he said, when you fast, don't be like those hypocrites with a sad countenance. They do it for appearances. Jesus revealed that the true motive of those religious leaders fasting twice weekly was to make themselves look more pious and righteous. But then what does the Bible say? Well, here it is. The New Testament does not require us or command us as believers to fast. We need to be careful, and when you add to God's word, you're actually subtracting from it because it's pure and perfect. We have no right to put words in the mouth of God that he did not say. 
Now, with that said, the New Testament does present the voluntary act of fasting in a positive light when done with the right heart and the right motives. For example, in the book of Acts, we have instances when believers were fasting before making important decisions like concerning missionary outreach. So today, while not required, fasting can be helpful when facing critical decisions. Truth be told, I don't fast very often, but there have been seasons in my life when I faced monumental crossroads decisions, so I fasted and prayed. Fasting is usually abstaining from food, but it can also be from other things. The idea is to replace that time of eating with a time of focused prayer as we seek God. And for the record, friends, fasting is not Christian dieting. Otherwise, we're missing the point of fasting, which is to focus more on God and draw closer to Him. And if fasting is done to try and be more righteous, like those religious leaders, then, well, like them, we're simply adding works to our faith. So coming back to our conflict here, Jesus was being questioned as to why his disciples did not fast twice a week. There was a definite accusation lying just beneath the surface of that question that if Jesus and his disciples were truly, you know, devout, then why weren't they fasting twice a week? But as it's been well said, sometimes we need to answer the questions and sometimes we need to question the questions. Their question then was built on the sand of tradition and not on the rock of God's word. Jesus responded with three illustrations or little mini parables. In verse 19, Jesus begins by asking the question, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is present with them? What the religious leaders didn't know and they failed to recognize is that Jesus was the bridegroom, the son of God. Even his first miracle took place at a wedding feast in Cana. In that first century culture, a Jewish wedding would last a week, and the bridegroom would select his closest friends to act as his attendants for the wedding festivities. The entire week was a time of joyful celebration, and those friends of the bridegroom would enjoy the occasion along with the bridegroom. So on the one hand, the fasting of the religious leaders was superficial and hypocritical, And then with that, the disciples fasting while Jesus was with them was completely out of place. Well, like fasting at a wedding or dancing at a funeral. Ecclesiastes 3.4 reminds us that there's a proper time for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. In the three plus years that the disciples had with Jesus, it was their time to fellowship with him and not to fast or mourn. So Jesus said, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. These words of Jesus expose the fact that those Pharisees were unsaved. They were not friends of the bridegroom. In fact, they didn't even know the bridegroom. They were like religious wedding crashers. Today, believers are the bride of Christ, and one day we'll celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then in verse 20, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away And he was referring to his crucifixion, but even then the joy of his resurrection would triumph over his death. Then in verses 21 and 22, Jesus shares a couple more illustrations to make his point. First off, trying to combine religious traditions with Christian faith would be like using a piece of new cloth to repair a hole in an old garment. When the garment was washed, the new patch would shrink and tear away from the old material. 
This might explain why so many people today wear jeans with holes and tears and rips in them. (laughs) All kidding aside, Jesus was explaining that following Old Testament traditions and living by New Testament faith do not go together. They can't go together like old and new garments. On a side note, the Bible tells us that these old garments of our flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, and one day we'll receive new garments or new glorified spiritual bodies with which we can live and worship God for all of eternity. Well, secondly, Jesus described their accusations as like putting new wine into an old wineskin. Now, wineskins were made from goat skins, and after several uses, they would lose their elasticity. Consequently, if new wine was put into an old wineskin, it would ferment and expand and then cause the old wineskin to burst open. For the same reason, older and overweight people should not wear skinny jeans. Well, I'll leave it at that. Either way, the New Testament message of grace by faith cannot be contained in the Old Testament wineskins of religious traditions. Let's pick up our reading again. Let's go to verse 23, please. Now Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and along the way his disciples began to pluck some heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, Look, why do they do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Here then, conflicts in Galilee continue with our second point, conflict over Sabbath. In fact, our next two conflicts bring us into a discussion about the Sabbath day. This is a subject that I dealt with regularly as a pastor because our church was in an area with many Seventh-day Adventists who insist that we must worship God on Saturday. So let's take a quick look at this story in Mark, and then we'll talk more about the Sabbath question for today. The Old Testament law allowed a hungry person to pick some fruit or grain from their neighbor's property or some field or vineyard on any day of the week. You obviously couldn't fill a shopping cart or a pickup truck. That would be stealing. But if you were genuinely hungry and in need of food, you could pick some grain and eat it. But that wasn't even the issue here with the Pharisees. They were protesting the disciples breaking their man-made rules by picking grain, and therefore the accusation was that they were working on the Sabbath. They were harvesting grain fields. Jesus responded with a story from the Old Testament when David was on the run from King Saul. He and his men were hungry, and so they asked the priest for some food at the tabernacle, and those priests gave them some of the showbread. Inside the tabernacle, there was that table of showbread, and on it were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And once a week, the priest removed the old bread and replaced it with new loaves. And even then, only the priests were permitted to eat that bread. But in David's extenuating circumstances, the priests graciously gave the old bread to David and his men because they were legitimately hungry and in need. In the same way, the disciples were not harvesting grain fields on the Sabbath. They were simply hungry, and they only grabbed a few handfuls of grain to eat. They had not violated God's Old Testament law. They had only violated the religious leaders' man-made rules. 
Then Jesus argued that the Sabbath day was intended to be a blessing to people, not a burden. The Sabbath was made for man to bless him and not man for the Sabbath to observe a bunch of silly rules and regulations, but the religious leaders got it backwards. Sabbath simply means rest, and it was given by God as a spiritual and physical blessing, not a legalistic burden. Jesus makes the even stronger point in verse 28 that the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath, therefore he controls how it should be observed. The Sabbath was given to us by God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Ironically, the Talmud, the book of Jewish traditions, actually has 24 chapters listing various Sabbath laws. For example, on the Sabbath, Jews were not permitted to travel more than 3,000 feet from their house. They were not allowed to carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig. They couldn't carry a needle for fear of possibly sewing something. Taking a bath was forbidden. And women were not to look in a mirror because they might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair. Oh my goodness. It would almost be funny if it wasn't so silly. Those religious rules, they weren't biblical. They're just uh, traditions from the rabbis passed on through generations. And so these conflicts arose because the spiritually blind religious leaders did not recognize Jesus as the bridegroom or as the Lord of the Sabbath. They were too busy following their own traditions. Well, let's talk about the Sabbath question for today. Is the Sabbath still in effect for today? Are Christians commanded to observe the Sabbath? Is the Lord's Day the same as the Sabbath Day? And since the Sabbath Day was on Saturday, should we actually be worshiping God on Saturday instead of on Sunday? Well, to quote myself from earlier, if you don't mind, whenever we encounter a question like this, we want to make a beeline for the scriptures to ask and to answer the question, what does the Bible have to say? So let's begin our discussion uh, and talk about what the Sabbath is and what it isn't. In the Old Testament, Sabbath was established by God, as most of you know, for the Jewish people as a day of rest. Sabbath, again, comes from a Hebrew word that literally means rest from labor. Nowhere in the Bible did God give the Sabbath command to any other nation or people, only to the Jews, as we read, for example, Exodus 31. Uh, that'd be a good chapter to reference, and several times, especially in the second half, it's stated that the Sabbath was for the Jews only. It was a sign between God and the Jewish people. It was based upon the week of creation, that God created the universe and everything in it in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, the final day of the week, which is Saturday. God instituted a Sabbath rest for his people, which was observed on the seventh day, and so Saturday is indeed the Sabbath day. Which brings us back to today and to the New Testament church. Does the Sabbath still apply to us as Christians today? Well, some will argue with me, and that's fine, but the answer is no, and let me give you some biblical reasons why. Number one, the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. I already touched on this from Exodus 31, but as New Testament Christians, we're under a new covenant. At the same time, most of us are not Jews. The Jewish people had three particular areas of practice in their faith that was strictly between them and God, not Gentiles. One was the Sabbath, 
another was circumcision, and the other was the Jewish dietary laws. None of those observances have ever been a part of the New Testament church, nor were they ever intended for anyone outside of Judaism. Secondly, Sabbath and worship are two different things. Some groups insist that genuine believers should worship on Saturday, but why? The Sabbath was for resting, not for worshiping. Nowhere in Scripture is the Sabbath commanded to be a day of worship. It's like mixing apples and oranges. Thirdly, the church has always met together on Sunday, the first day of the week. Ever since the church was born, as we read in the book of Acts chapter 2, we never read in the rest of the New Testament of the church ever coming to meet to worship on Saturday. They always met on Sunday. Fourthly, the New Testament never commands believers to keep the Sabbath. In fact, the New Testament clearly teaches that Sabbath keeping is not a requirement for believers in Colossians chapter 2. And the New Testament teaches that religious festivals and Sabbath days are a shadow of the reality which is found in Christ, and that's in Romans 14. In Galatians 4, Paul rebukes the Galatians for thinking that God expected them to observe special days like the Sabbath. Number five, Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. Our entire Christian faith is based upon the death and resurrection of Christ, and Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week on Sunday, and that's why Christians typically worship God on Sunday. Number six, the church was born on Sunday. Not only has the New Testament church always met on Sundays, the church itself was born on a Sunday, on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, and it comes 50 days after Passover, which lands on a Sunday. Number seven, the Jerusalem Council did not require believers to keep the Sabbath. In Acts 15, you remember that, that they had that critical council meeting, and the apostles and other key Christian leaders and missionaries met to together to discuss what was required of a genuine believer. And if there was ever a time in which the early church would have made an issue about the Sabbath, if it was one, that definitely would have been the time. But they didn't even discuss it. It was a non-issue. Number eight, Paul never, ever warned Christians about breaking the Sabbath. However, Paul did warn us as believers not to let anyone judge us in regard to the Sabbath. That's Colossians 2.16. If anyone tries to badger you about this, simply ask them to show you in the New Testament where Christians are required to observe the Sabbath. Number nine, the Sabbath is not the same as the Lord's Day. Again, we touched on this, but sometimes even believers think that the Lord's Day on Sunday is our version of a Christian Sabbath. But again, they're two different subjects. Remember, the Sabbath was for rest. The Lord's Day is for corporate worship, prayer, and fellowship. The Sabbath was on Saturday. The Lord's Day is on Sunday. And number 10, finally, the writings of the early church fathers confirm Sunday meetings. Writers like Tertullian and Augustine and Ignatius confirm in their writings that from the beginning, the churches always met together on Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's Day, the day when he rose from the, day, the dead, and the day when the New Testament church was birthed by the Holy Spirit. As one 16th century Puritan wrote, the Jews' seventh day was buried in Christ's grave. Well, let's consider one more section now. Let's go to Mark 3, and uh, let's go to verse 1, where we read that 
Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him, Jesus, closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to the others, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Oh my. When we slow down and consider the passage that we just read, we find the attitude and actions of those religious leaders not only pathetic, but demonic. Obviously, this conflict was also related to the Sabbath, and it becomes our third point, conflict over healing. Back in chapter 1, Jesus had cast demons out of a man in the synagogue, and here now, Jesus encounters a man with a deformed hand in the synagogue. That first time, the religious leaders were caught off guard, but this time in verse 2, notice how they were watching Jesus closely, looking for the opportunity to accuse him. Jesus certainly would have healed this man on a different day. He could have, but he, in my opinion, was intentionally challenging the man-made religious traditions of those religious leaders. So he questioned his accusers. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? As far as helping people and saving lives, one day should not differ from another. If their neighbor's house was on fire, would they remain silent and let the house burn down because it was the Sabbath? Because it was more than 3,000 feet away and they couldn't cross that little invisible barrier? If a person was seriously injured, would they neglect to give medical aid because it was the Sabbath and it would be considered work? It's foolishness, and Jesus was exposing the foolishness of their religious regulations. And notice their response at the end of verse 4 but they kept silent. They refused to admit that Jesus was right, and they refused to admit that they were wrong. This caused Jesus to look at them with divine anger because of the hardness of their hearts. It's worth noting that we never read in the Gospels of Jesus expressing anger at sinners like tax collectors or prostitutes, but Jesus definitely did get angry with the hypocritical, self-righteous religious leaders. They would rather protect their man-made traditions than to see a man healed. Unbelievable. But even today, we can fall into a similar attitude in our churches if we're not careful. We can become very legalistic and worry more about rules and regulations than we do about grace and mercy. I think of the story about Pastor Chuck Smith back in the early days of his church, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in Southern California. The church building was fairly new, and lots of people were coming to hear the gospel preached and the word of God taught. Many of those people were hippies back in the 1960s, and some of them came into the church barefoot. This caused some of the board members to complain to Pastor Chuck Smith that their dirty feet were soiling the new carpet. Pastor Chuck's response was classic, then you guys need to rip out the carpeting as soon as possible. The more we care about what God thinks, the less we will care about what people think. 
Here in verse 6, the response of the religious leaders was demonic. They immediately plotted as to how they might destroy him. We also learned that the Herodians, these were Jews who were sympathetic and supportive of the national leaders, the Herods, they also joined in with the Pharisees and their plan to kill Jesus. The Herodians and Pharisees did not often see eye to eye, but in this case, they were united in their hatred of Jesus. Well, a good takeaway application for us as believers, there's many, but one would be to ask ourselves if if we're living by grace or if we're being legalistic. Legalism is preaching grace but practicing law. It's emphasizing rules and regulations over kindness and mercy. As Christians, we have been saved by grace through faith, and as Christians, we must continue to live by grace through faith. Well, until our next podcast then, may the Lord bless you abundantly.